We are in week seven of our parables, vignettes of spiritual truth. We've been kind of chugging through those, and we started with some fun ones, like, oh, these are fun, these are great. And then they seem like progressively gotten harder and harder, haven't they? Like as we keep digging into these parables, we keep getting to these really hard truths that Jesus is laying out about his new kingdom. Well, as I was studying this week, I was found looking at Italian history, not something that I normally dabble in, but it's where I ended up. And I, I was specifically at the time frame of 1173. In Italy, a woman gave money to fund a project for a third structure for the Catholic church that she was attending and the cathedral area of that hometown that she lived in. And she was going to build this structure in a place called the Field of Miracles. Now, in hindsight, it seems like it would have made a lot more sense that the church would have had a little bit more voice in the construction of this particular building because the Bible actually talks directly about the very problem that they ran, in, they ran into. See, this building was made of very heavy marble and they had way too small a foundation when they first started designing it. It was built on an old bog with very wet and sandy soil. And it would become the focus of engineers for hundreds and hundreds of years as the years would go by and the project would start and the project would stop and they kept doing it. And these engineers and these different people that were ruling over that time would spend millions upon millions of dollars trying to correct the issue that was taking place with this building. Even as early as 10 years ago, they were still trying to figure out how to fix this, which almost destroyed the building in the process of trying to fix it. And the hope would be is that it wouldn't lean too far and topple over, which became the nickname of... Exactly. Hi, you guys are good. <laughs> you see, we can look at that and go, what a huge lack of planning. What, a, what a, a silly misunderstanding that a very simple, maybe a couple of weeks of extra work to figure out the foundation and the soil that they were in would have prevented this from being a problem. But we start to see that foundation becomes increasingly important for who we are. If, you, if a building is to survive, it needs a strong and solid foundation. And this is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a foundation, but I don't want to talk about your house per se. I want to talk about your faith. I want to talk about your life. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is a hard, this is a hard parable. As I studied it, I was like, oh, this one's rough. This is the kind of parable that clears out the seats in the church. This is the one that makes you think about who you are and who Jesus is and what you truly believe about him. And so I want to walk in um, Carefully, but confidently in knowing that it's God's word. So as we move into this, Jesus has been talking about a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it actually lands at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus guesses his, his most probably lengthiest section of teaching, and he comes down to the end, and this parable is at the very, very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had been talking about two different things all the time. He talked about the, the two trees. He talked about the two rows. He talked about the two men. He talked about the two buildings, which is where we're going to get. And he's using that thing that we talked about time and time again, which was contrast, right? The two is the contrast. There's this way and there's that way. You got to make a decision. And that's what Jesus is going to do today, that he is going to lay out this idea of what it means to have your faith in him, and you got to pick one. He's not going to let it go without you making a decision. And so 
if you think about the context of what was happening and what was going on and the people, how they would have heard that, this message becomes really important. You see, Jesus had, you know, been baptized by John the Baptist. God spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see that Jesus then goes off to the desert to get tempted, right? And so what Jesus does in that, if you're not familiar, like why that's a big deal, he did what we couldn't do in the garden. That's really what was happening in that moment is that Jesus did what we couldn't do. And in that moment, he said no to Satan and yes to God. It's what we should have done in the garden and it's what we didn't do in the garden. And so he becomes the second Adam and did the right thing. And he rejects that and says, I will trust God. I will be obedient to God. And that's what he's doing. And so then everyone sees this happen. He starts teaching, he starts preaching, and then all of a sudden he's healing people and he's going from town to town and word is spreading fast. That there's this guy who teaches differently, who's healing people that are sick, and the crowds do what? They get big. When stuff like that happens, crowds create crowds and the crowds are gathering and the crowds are getting big. And so what happens is Jesus looks around, he's picked his 12 disciples, he sees this massive crowd of people and he walks up on top of this mount. It's not a mountain, it's just a high elevated place. He walks up there and he's going to teach them. He's going to teach them on all sorts of stuff. He wants to teach them about his new kingdom, how his new kingdom acts, how his new kingdom functions. And he wants to talk about the rescue plan that he has for his people. He is going to confront evil in what he teaches. He's going to point to restoring God's reign over all things. That he is creating a new people, or even uh, a better way of putting it, as a new family that will follow and obey him appropriately. So his teaching is all about how to live in God's new kingdom. And he teaches on things like lust and divorce and loving others and how to pray, anxiety, money, judging others, fasting. And he gets to the end, he's going to give them this massive question. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 7, 24 through 29. If you have your Bibles, open up. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. If you're like, I'm not sure how to navigate it, it's okay. It'll actually be up on the screen so you can follow along with us. And this is what he says after he lays out his whole Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, uh... I ask that you would go before me, that you would soften the hearts of men and women this morning, that this may hit in some areas that we don't like, that you love us enough to press into our lives because you care about us, because you don't want us to live in a way that's in contradiction to who you are. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me. I ask that you would give me the confidence and the power to communicate your word effectively, that it wouldn't be my words, that you would be lifted high, that you would be exalted That as as I've had to work through this as well, Lord, I ask that we would do the hard work of working through this passage and understanding what you're saying to us, that you have a word for us today 
We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So if you start kind of boiling down where this particular teaching is going, we're talking about hearing and doing. So he's kind of gone about proclaiming and what that means, but now he's in this idea of hearing and doing, trust and obedience, and how that's paramount to the faith of a believer in this new kingdom under the rule of Christ. So we've been doing this all along, and some of you have said this has been really helpful that we start breaking down the symbolism. Is that something that you guys have enjoyed me doing? Okay, good. When we get there, I'll do it. When we're not there, I can't offer you anything. Sorry. So let's do this. Who is the wise man? Who does the wise man represent? Okay, yeah. So members of the Christian community that are hearers and doers. Okay, so that's who that is. So members of the Christian community who are hearers and doers. Who's the foolish man? That's right. Members of the Christian community, but are only hearers. Okay, so that's a, that's a distinctive there. Um, what does the house represent? Our life. The house is our life, right? That's where we live, where we reside, who we are. The two kinds of ground, what do those represent? What we do with God's word, what we trust, okay? And so then we have the two grounds. We have the rock. What is that? He is, Jesus is the rock. It's trusting Jesus and obeying him, right? So that's what it is. So we're on the rock. It's trusting Jesus and obeying what he says. Well, what do you think the sand is then? Not doing what he's called us to, right? So it's the opposite of that. Now, this is where it gets a little, a little bit harder, but we're going to get there. What do the storms, rain, and winds, and floods represent? So this is where it gets tough. So yes and no. So we, I have normally heard this preach where it's, this is about the trials that come in life and the things that happen. Can you apply this to that? Yes, you can. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about God's final judgment. Okay, so that is what he's talking about. He's talking about the storm that comes, that there is a storm that will come. And ultimately, there will be a final judgment where Jesus comes back and he gets his people. And when he's talking about this storm, this is what he's talking about in this moment. In the context of what he's saying, this is where he's at. So the falling building would be destruction. Absolutely, it would be the destruction of those that aren't a part of that family. And this is why this is a hard parable. It is talking about a finality. It's talking about a reality of what's going to happen. Now, I used to live in the desert. I'll say that a lot because it's, if you haven't lived there, you don't get it. If you have lived there, you're like, oh man, it's tough. And if you live in the desert, it's not like sandy beaches. It's not like, the, you know, you're out in Sahara Desert where they flow. That's not what it's like. It's just dry and everything is hard. And there's sand everywhere, but you wouldn't realize it because the sand has been dried out so much and been compacted so much because it never rains that it feels like rock. It feels like, you can hit it with a hammer. I mean, it's hard. We drive our Jeeps on it and it's crazy. But when the rain comes, because it's a bunch of little rocks, it gets swept away. And all that, that compacting, it gets, it gets ruined. And what happens is you'll see these giant ruts and rivers form in the desert that are flowing like crazy. And then you go back the next day when it's all dried out, it looks like a totally different road because it couldn't withstand the storm and the rain that came. You, you see, there are homes all throughout the deserts. And there are those that have lasted for hundreds of years that are built on rock foundation. 
that went down to the bedrock. And then there's a lot of other houses all throughout the desert that are half fallen over, half enveloped with sand because the water had come, the sand came through, and it kind of filled that area up, and they didn't last. See, the reality is that there is this, if you don't do the hard work and the preparation of digging down deep to get down to the rock, your house will not survive. And that's what Jesus wants to tell us. He's trying to tell us that this is what you need to understand about your faith. If your faith is not built upon the rock, if it's not believing who I am and believing what I say to do and living that out, then you will fall. You will not survive when judgment comes. And he's saying, what will you do with me in my teachings? That's really what he's doing. So remember, end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's just taught on all these things. What will you do with what I've told you? What will you do with what it means to live like this? See, the foolish man builds the house quickly. The foolish man goes, yeah, 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 sure, 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 whatever, no big deal. You know, we don't, we don't think about foundation much. You know why? We don't see them. You don't see a foundation, but it's so important. Um, does anybody remember the 89 earthquake? Anybody remember that? I do. I was in the Bay Area. <laughs> I felt every bit of it. And I remember I was a, uh, a young teenage boy collecting money for my paper route. And, you know, I've been well-trained in school because in California, you don't have fire drills. You have earthquake drills. And so they're like, run outside. So you run out to the middle of the big open area in hopes that a tree won't fall on you. And so we, I ran out into the middle of the street, which seems counterintuitive, but that's what I did. And I looked down the road. It was a long, long street. And I'll never forget this. I saw the road waving like a wave all the way towards it. I'm like, what is happening? Now, I also live next to a neighborhood that's called Los Gatos. We live in San Jose. Los Gatos is an extremely wealthy old community in California, one of the wealthiest communities in California, I'd say. And old, beautiful homes, Victorian homes that have been there for, you know, all sorts of time, and it gets handed down from one family to the next family. And when that earthquake hit, it decimated that city. It destroyed it, and it shut it down for multiple months Houses fell down, they fell off their foundation, they slid down, they, they were wrecked. Buildings crumbled, like four-story buildings were crumbling down. It was a nightmare. And on this, all these wealthy people lived in all these beautiful homes. And ultimately, this earthquake took it out because they had never prepared for a quake like that. The engineers didn't have the knowledge of what it looked like to build the foundation strong. So those houses that were so beautiful, they all got torn down. And then they had to build new ones. See, we, we know that you have to build this way. We, we know that you have to, to put this into practice. At the heart of this passage, it's about obedience. And I'm going to say this a few times because we can make some very large mistakes with this passage. And so I want to make sure that we're always making, we know what we're talking about. Um, obedience does not save you, Okay? Obedience does not save you. We're not talking about works-based faith. I'm going to do this thing, and so therefore God will love me. I'm going to do this thing, so therefore God owes me. That is not what I'm saying. So I want, and I'll say it a few times. But here's the thing that I want us to understand, that obedience is the evidence of your faith. And I want to unpack that a little bit. See, if the gospel has transformed your heart, then you will joyfully obey God. You're like, well, what about begrudgingly? Can I begrudgingly be obedient? 
Let me pose this. If Jesus took care of the largest problem in our life, which was sin and separation from him, if he brought us back to him, if he sent his son to die on the cross, why in the world would we think that all the other things he doesn't care about? Right? He's like, I've done the hard work. I've done the thing that needs to get done. I love you. I care about you. I have provided a way for you to be with me. Like, why in the world would I, would I not trust him with every aspect of my life? See, this is the gospel. Romans uh, 9.10 would say this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's two things going on here, aren't there? What's the first one? We confess. We say, Jesus is Lord. He died for my sins. I placed my trust in him. But it doesn't stop there, does it? And if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. What does that mean? What are we talking about when we talk about this idea of believe? Well, here's the thing. When we believe something to be true, we live that out, don't we? When something is, I believe this is all my heart, it's, it's, I, I, I see it, I know it, I understand it, and so I will then put that into practice. That's what you're going to do. With any part of your life, with whatever you do, if you believe something to be true, you will live that thing out. It's always the byproduct of what we do. You believe it, you do it. And, and I think that we just need to understand that if, if you start living in this way where you say that you believe that God is true and what Jesus said is true and you believe that God, you know, Jesus said this is how you give God glory. When we don't do that, we're really saying, God, you have no authority in my life. You are not my Lord and you are my King. Because I mean, here's the thing, if he... If Jesus is who he says he is, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he is God incarnate. Don't you think we do that? But at times in our lives, what we do is we don't want to give that authority in our lives. And we decide that I'm going to do it my way. I have a better way. I've figured it out. I know better. See, a common theme in the Bible is that God wants more than your lips. He wants your heart. This was a problem with the Israelites all the time. They would say all the stuff. They'd even do some of the things. But he's like, I don't have your heart. It's interesting. Coming from a Western culture, we think in a certain way, right? And so when we think about why we do what we do, we would probably say that if, if I understand it and I believe it and I think through it, then that's what I'm going to do. So we tend to think more as the center of who we are as our mind and how we do things are based out of that. It's not so with the Eastern culture. The Eastern culture would say the center of who you are and where everything flows from is actually the heart. It's actually kind of central to where we are and where it resides in our body. And so it's saying that your heart is what everything flows from. Jesus would say that too, right? What flows from the mouth is what flows from the heart of man, right? It's, 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 it's the outpouring of your life. It's how you live all these things out. And he wants us to understand that this is what it's like. And Jesus is saying, I, I don't just want your lips, I want your heart. Because if I have your heart, I have your life. And I have your life, you're mine. And that's what he's trying to get at. See, there is a thing that happened that we all had, we were all had dead hearts. We all had hearts of stone. And what does Jesus give us? A heart of flesh. And this new heart lives in a new way. And it acts in a new way. You know why? We know where the old heart got us, don't we? 
We understand that the way of living before is the very thing that caused the separation that we had with God. So why would we continue to live in that way if we know that that product equals destruction? Right? We have a new heart, and the new heart lives in a new way, and it lives in a trust for the Father and what the Son taught. See, actions are the byproduct of heart transformation. And I want us to hear this. Jesus is concerned with every day of our lives. And not just every day of our lives, every part of our lives. He cares about what we do. He cares how you live your life. And I don't know when this changed, what generation decided that, it, you know, just Jesus wants to give me a big hug, you're going to high five and everything's great. No, he wants your life. It, it, it's, it's crazy. He, he wants... He wants us to understand that there is a throne in our heart and there's a battle all the time for that throne, isn't there? I want to do it my way. I like my way better. My way's easier. My way feels better. My way doesn't hurt. God's like, I know you think that, but I love you so much that I see how far that goes. And I know where that fails. And I know the pain that's waiting on the other side of those decisions for the things that you want to do. And I love you so much, I'm going to call you to how life should live. See, Jesus was there at the beginning. He designed with the Father how everything is supposed to function and how everything works the best and how everything gives glory to God. He says, I know, trust me, believe me. I'm not a mean, sadistic father. I'm a kind and loving and patient father. See, and Jesus is laying down this idea of digging down deeper to the foundation of the rock. This is our house. It's, it's us actively trusting and obeying and believing him. See, that's the foundation of what we're doing. We read God's word and we submit to him even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand it because you know what? It's not that God may not understand it. It's that we don't understand it, but he does. Now, I want to share a story that makes me look poor and, and bad, so that will make you feel good about yourself. So I used to work um, in heating and air conditioning, but I worked on industrial equipment. So uh, chillers, boilers, cooling towers, uh, big, huge equipment in all these big buildings. <clears throat> and I was on call at, uh, at Moffett Field. Uh, is where I worked, and so we had all these really expensive rooms and server rooms and stuff, and there was a chiller that was giving us a lot of problems. And all a chiller does is make things cold, in a nutshell. It makes water cold, and you blow air across it. That's the, that's the big idea. And it's been giving us problems, and I had talked with my, uh, my boss, and he told me, like, yeah, this thing's been giving us problems. This is what it's doing, and this is what needs to be done if this thing has a problem. Now, he's telling me that because I was on call for that week. And I had the pager. Those are things not just doctors have. So I had a pager, and that pager would then say, oh, there's a problem. Call that guy. The tech will come out, and he'll fix it in the middle of the night. And so you gamble when you get on call because you're like, if no one calls, I get free money. But if it calls, I got to go wake up. So it's always a gamble. And so sure enough, he had told me what needed to be done, how to do it, and what was the right way and the wrong way to do it. Pager goes off at like 2 in the morning. And I'm like, ugh, and I call my can you just reset it? They're like, no, you got to come out. I'm like, okay. So I get in the car, I drive down and I tried a couple quick things and it didn't do it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be like an all night event. I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a shortcut and I'm going to do a couple things that I probably shouldn't do. 
And so I did it quick because my bed was calling me. And so I just, I got it done. I, I buttoned it up. I'm like, I think we're good. I'm out of here. Go home, get some sleep. The next day I come into the office. Who do you think's waiting for me? Oh, yeah. Hey, Simon, how's it going? Good. <laughs> hey, I heard the chiller went off. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. What'd you do? Uh, well, I did this and this and this. He's like, so, so you did what I said not to do? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did. What did I look like? A fool. I knew exactly what I needed to do. And I rejected that because guess who's, guess who's smarter? Not this guy. And actually, my actions caused more damage to that chiller than was initially wrong with it. And it cost the company even more money. I am surprised I did not get fired for that. I should have. This is what we do with God all the time. We come here and we hear God's word preached. And then we're like, I'm smarter than you, God. I'm going to do what I want. You're dumb. I'm smart. You don't get it. I do. Can you think of another place in the Bible where this has happened? Way, way back in the beginning, maybe. God said, don't eat of this fruit. For when you do, you will surely die. Did God really say, yeah, you know what? I think God's full of it. God doesn't get it. He's wrong. What does he know? Oh, wait, we can be our own gods? I'm in. I like being in charge. And it went sideways. Sin entered the world. And what did it do? God said, just trust me. Like, not only did God say, don't do this, he then said, because if you do, this will happen. Like, he's like so good, he's like, don't do this, because that's the problem. And they, they brushed him off. See, they didn't trust God in that moment. It was the lip service. It was what I was doing with my boss. Uh-huh, sure, boss. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it, I got it, I got it. That's what they were doing. Same thing. Same exact thing. See, they... Their evidence was really clear about what they believed in the garden, wasn't it? Obedience is always the evidence of your faith. Now, I'm going to read a bunch of verses because I can tell you a bunch of stuff, but God's word is way better than me and has way more weight and way more power. And I don't want you to think I'm making this stuff up. So all of this is in the app. You can get all of these notes if you want to go back. And I recommend going through it later in the week and just reading through it, especially before your uh, life groups this week, and really kind of... See what God is saying on a regular basis. But I'm going to kind of move sort of quick, so just be aware of that. But they're all going to be there, and they are going to be up on the screen. So the first one is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What does that mean? Live out what you believe. Obey God. First John. First John really hits on this a lot, but I'm only going to read a couple sections. First John 1, uh, 6, and I'm going to go through 8. Sorry, guys, in the back. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Are we getting a pattern here? Let's go to the end of John as he like wraps up in chapter 5, verses 3, actually 2 through 4. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Our faith lived out in obedience. That's what he's talking about. That's, uh, you know which one I'm going to next. I'm going to James. We've got to go to James if we're talking about this, right? I mean, he hammers it. Uh, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then it would say in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Jesus would say this in John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Old Testament song, Psalm 128, verse one. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. And then Titus Somewhere in my Bible. You know, it's bad when the pastor can't find his own verses. God, so small. There you go. Got it. Titus 3, 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Who saved us? Jesus saved us. Okay, good. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercies by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, works-based faith? Nope. Jesus did it. But let's keep reading. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful, here we go, to devote themselves to good works. God is calling us to believe him, obey him, and live it out. See, there's this tension that's happening all the time, and I love that James does it constantly, right? James is like, you can't, we try to separate works and faith. And he's like, you can't separate the one because without the one, you don't have the other. They work in conjunction all the time. And that's what he's trying to tell us. Like, we have this weird dichotomy that we've created where he's like, well, you can have one or the other. And you can't. 
If you believe it, you will live it out. Again, I'm not promoting works-based faith, but an active faith that the world can see and run to God who changes lives and makes people new. Isn't that why we came to Jesus in the first place? Because our lives were so messed up and we were so broken and we were so far from God. Don't we want the men and women that we get to meet to see that, to understand that, to, to get glimpses of God? This is why we're, we're gonna spend all this money on the Harvest Fest so that we can interact with them, so they can see what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what Jesus does with the hearts of the people that he saves. This is how he transforms them. They live counterculture. They live differently. They are kind and loving, and they're sharing, and they're generous. Those are all the things that God is. And because he loves us and gives us the Holy Spirit, those are the fruits of the Spirit, right? We live those things out, and they see him. In Matthew... <clears throat> Seven, just before that, he talks about the two different trees, right? Seven, 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. How do you know what a Christian looks like? By how they live their life. Do you really believe there will be fruit? It, it, it's just funny. We don't expect oranges from an apple tree, do we? We just don't. What do we expect from an apple tree? I was really hoping you get that one right. Yes, apples. We want apples from an apple tree. And if we have a new heart, we have a new root, and that new root produces something. This message that Jesus is giving at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is a warning. And the warning is that there is a storm coming where the time of God's patience will come to an end. And you will have to stand before the creator of the universe and give an account for your life. You can do that in your own merit and hope that you meet God's perfect standard. But let me just give you a clue. You can't. I can't. If I had to stand before God with the life that I lived, there's no way that he wouldn't judge me. Or you can place it in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can stand in his merit because he did what we couldn't do in the garden, didn't he? He said no to Satan and yes to God and lived the perfect life. He had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. That way, if he gives us his righteousness, it would actually mean something. Like, that's the idea. That's what's going on. He has called us to have a relationship with him. And part of a relationship is based out of the idea of trust and believing him. That's, that's what a relationship does. God loves you enough to wake you up where you are today and to call you out and say, if you are not obeying him and you're just giving the, the lip service, you are not built on the rock. And he loves you too much to allow you to continue to walk in that. And here's my fear today, especially in a room full of a lot of people that have been around the block for a long time, is that we are in a room full of leaning towers of Christians. And we have put our foundation on the wrong thing. And it's hard because sometimes we don't see it in our own life, do we? It's not until you look at the Leaning Tower of Pisa in the contrast to buildings that are upright and vertical that are actually with a solid foundation that you realize how far off they are. As we exist in Christian community, we get to lovingly press into each other, kindly press into each other to call them back to truth because he loves us. 
couple of questions that I have for you today. Do you need to place your life on the rock of Jesus? Maybe for the very first time. If you're not a Christian, you've not placed your hope for salvation in him, there is a real judgment coming. I, I, I say that not to be the hellfire and brimstone guy, but I just care too much that you would walk out of here and not hear that God is going to judge the world. But he's provided his son to give us hope. That he has provided his son to give us salvation. That he has justified us because he loves us. And he loves you and would call you to repent and to come to him today. If you're a Christian, I need to ask you a couple questions. Because this really is directed towards us. If you're in the Christian community, are you hearing, are you doing? Where in your life are you not obeying God? Where in your life are you not obeying God? Where do you think that you're smarter than God? Where have you said, eh, he's just old and cranky and that was the Old Testament? Because here's the thing. We do it all day long, don't we? Every day we have opportunities. Will we believe what God says? Will we trust what God has said? Is Jesus your authority or your fire insurance? Is he your get-out-of-jail-free card? Because what you're really doing in that moment is you're just playing games with the God of the universe who sees your heart. And he knows what you're doing. A lot of this is usually identified by the fact that you come to church, you do some stuff, but then you go out and you've got a totally different life that you're living. And you have your own ways of doing things and you just don't mix those two together. It's interesting, in verse 28 and 29, the response of the people in, in the presence of Jesus was pretty, pretty phenomenal. In verses 8 and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I want to just, the word astonished is a good word, but it's not the best way to explain it. It, it actually, if you, if you go to the original language and you break it down, it actually starts talking about that they were losing their mental composure. They were broken to their heart because in that moment, you know what they realized? I haven't been living for God. I'm just saying a lot of stuff and I'm just kind of showing up and being around it and I don't really believe it and I'm not really living it out and there's a problem that I have to address now in my life. There is something that I am not moving into. And they were visibly broken. What does your foundation look like? Are you leaning? Are you not leaning? Is it built on words? Or is there evidence of the obedience of your faith? Romans 12, 1. Uh, God gave me this verse last night. I was praying through this this sermon, and God gave me this verse, and I'm like, this is something I should probably kind of move into. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are creatures that were designed to worship. We want to worship something. It's in our DNA. It's how we were made. We are meant to worship God. Every day, we have the opportunity to worship God with what we do. And it's 
Worship's a hijacked word in the church. Mark and I have talked about this. It's this weird, it's like, it's the singing time, it's worship time. Every part of your life is worship. Every part of your life is about worship and obedience and about trusting God. How you eat your food, what is, it? is, it, is that food an idol to you or is that food a way that you can glorify God because he's given you taste buds and taste and he's made good foods that you can realize that he didn't have to make everything have flavor. It could have been bland. Everything could have been chicken, right? It has no flavor. It's whatever you season it with. But he didn't. He's good. It's what you drink, and it's how you act, and it's how you play, and it's where you go. It's how you spend your money. It's how you think. It's how you talk. It's how you engage your neighbors. Everything that we do is worship, and every time we're opposed, do I listen to my mom? Do I listen to my dad? That's an opportunity to trust and believe God. Will I submit to my boss? That's an opportunity to submit to God. Will I take vengeance back on someone who has cut my lawn two inches to the right when they should have been straight and they're on my property? Are you going to go and yell at them? Are you going to sabotage them? It's an opportunity to trust God. Am I going to do creative financing with my taxes this year? Am I going to trust God and bring glory to God and worship God with how I live my life? It is our act of spiritual worship is our lives submitting obediently to the God of the universe who loves you. And as I end, it can be hard because we can go, that's a lot, Simon. You were right. It is a lot. And you don't have to do it because Jesus did for you. He walked into the areas that you can't because he loves you. He saved you because you couldn't save yourself. And he knows that we can't live this new life on our own. So who's he give us? The Holy Spirit. God living in us. Prompting us, convicting us, and challenging us to live in a way that does what? Trust him. See, obedience is just trust. We just believe God and then we step out in faith. Like, I can have all the faith in the world to sit on that stool but it's not faith until I sit on the stool. You see, that's what we're talking about today. And that's why this is so important and so paramount that God loves you enough to call you out. And I don't care. I'd rather you feel embarrassed as someone who's been in the church your whole life and say for the first time that you repent and you realize that you have not trusted God with your life and surrendered to him today than be too proud. And when the storm comes, know that there's destruction waiting. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back away. Mark's going to come up with the band. They're going to play some songs, and I want you to ask some questions. God, what are, you, what are you telling me today? What are you saying to me right now? Where am I not living out obedience in my faith? And maybe it's a lot of areas. You know what's great? He calls us to repent and to call in his name, and he is just and faithful to forgive us. Let's pray. Jesus, this is, this is tough. But we know that it's because you love us that it's tough. And we know it's because you want the best for us and that you want to grow us to be in your image, that you want us to take your name forward everywhere we go. Lord, I ask that you would be with the men and women here today, that they would not harden their hearts towards this message, but they would soften it. We all have areas where we can grow. We all have areas where we're not believing you. And I ask that you would allow us to do that, that this is 
always taking off the old self and putting on the new self that we have in you. It's always kicking ourselves off the throne and allowing you to be in your proper place, which is ruler and king of our lives. I love you. Pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.